Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Good morning, everyone. It is a joy and a privilege to be here uh, today. And I want to thank you, Dr. Aiken, for the invitation to address you in a very special week, the Global Mission Week, as you have called it. And I want you to know that I am humble and I'm honored to be here at this pulpit. Since we have a limited amount of time, I would like to go right into my topic and I would like to speak to you about some challenges about advancing the truth in the Global South when we consider the Great Commission. Usually when we think about challenges, and the Great Commission, we tend to think about the harvest, which is plentiful, and the workers that are few, and the finances that are limited. But this morning, I want to speak to you and consider some difficulties that perhaps you are not so aware of in the North, but that we are facing in the global South. And one of those challenges is the attack on the trustworthiness and the inerrancy of the Bible, something that has been going on in the North for a long time, ever since the beginning of the Enlightenment. I think the Word of God and the people of God have been under siege one way or another. And as the time has gone by, the attacks have not lit up, but rather they have increased. So for our discussion this morning, I selected a very well-known passage uh, to you at the end of the book of Matthew, chapter 28, so that we may look at some of those challenges through this passage. And before we read, let's just pause for a second and ask the Lord for his guidance and uh, his direction. Father, we thank you and we praise you this morning for the privilege and the honor of speaking your word. We do it in your name, we do it under your authority, and we do it to your glory. So I ask that you would guard the preacher so that he may use your word to exalt your son, in whose name we pray, amen. This is the word of the Lord. Now the 11 disciples, verse 16, Matthew 28, went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That was the announcement of Christ's global mission. And as one would expect, 
a universal mission will require a universal authority and a universal and constant presence of the one in charge of the mission. And that is precisely what we find in this Great Commission text. All authority and the promise, I am with you to the end of the age all the time. All authority, all nations, obey all, all the time. And as the Lord commissioned his first missionaries, he passed on to them not only a message, but also a conviction, a passion, a hope, a certainty. And it is hard to imagine all of that being passed on or being transmitted through a corrupted word as some consider the Bible to be. Jesus gave them a commandment with an authority that couldn't fail because behind those words was the integrity of his name. A mission as monumental as the one announced by Christ before ascending into heaven would need a solid, unquestionable, unshakable, and unchallengeable authority, and so they received in his word. We are not certain about the inerrancy of the original message. We couldn't know what the gospel is. And we couldn't even repeat the words of the Apostle Paul to the Corinthians in chapter 15 in his first epistle when we wrote this in uh, verses 1 to 3. Now I, want, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. Now listen, for I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received. That last phrase is paramount. We are passing on to the next generation something that has been received, and we have the responsibility to do that without adulterating that message. So for the purpose of seeing how vitally important the doctrine of inerrancy is in evangelism and mission, I will divide my Matthean Great Commission text into four phrases which we read and you know. Go therefore to the ends of the world, make disciples, and finally teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. So let's take the first phrase, go therefore. Jesus was sending his 11 disciples into a worldwide mission where they would encounter all kinds of oppositions, obstacles, uncertainties, and that is the very reason why he was so emphatic at the beginning when he says, all authority has been given to me above every king, above, above every nation, every demon, every disease, any problem, any difficulties, any governor, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And now he was delegating that authority to these 11 disciples, personally trained by him. And to some degree, he was going to delegate some level of authority to the rest of us who are carrying on the Great Commission. But that authority was invested in his word. 
the people being sent needed a complete confidence in the sender and in the message. Any degree of doubt on Christ, either on either one, Christ or the Word, would create doubtful, hesitant disciples, fearful and incapable of embracing a mission as encompassing as the entire world. The men of old, they risked their lives teaching and preaching this word because they were convinced. They were convinced about something that the apostle Peter tells us in his first letter, chapter 1, verse 21. You know the verse, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. <coughs> they knew full well that these men spoke from God, and if they did, they spoke in his name, and therefore the preaching of a fallible message would bring into question not only the word of God, but the name of God, the very name by which they will be baptizing the new converts. His word and his name are coextensive with his being so that when you question one, you question the other. The psalmist says it so well when he expressed in Psalm 138, verse 2, for you have exalted above all things your name and your word. Sure, there's nothing higher than his name. There's nothing higher than his word because they both represent the character of God. Now, when disciple makers go into the mission field, <coughs> believing that the word being shared is not infallible, inerrant, totally reliable. There will be a tendency to retreat when the message is challenged. And so we have seen. Many today would say that we cannot believe the cosmology of the Bible and the first three chapters of the book of Genesis because in essence, those chapters represent the mythological understanding of the people of their day. Now, if that is true, how would you and I argue against the mythological understanding of the false religions in the mission field? It would be impossible. Why would anyone change a flawed revelation of the origin of the universe for another flawed revelation of the origin of the same universe? If these represent basically mythological descriptions of the origin of, the, of nature, or as some would call it, mythologized history. Now, if those who are being sent to proclaim the gospel cannot be sure about the message, we need to ask some questions. Number one, would they really go passionately? Would they risk their lives, as many have done? Would they engage in apologetic evangelism? Would they confront the lies of the cultures that they are trying to evangelize? If the revealed word of God is inaccurate, what would be the moral authority to confront the beliefs of those that you're trying to reach. 
There wouldn't be any moral authority. So suddenly the Great Commission becomes a mission impossible. Many pastors and missionaries today do not believe in the power of the gospel alone to do the work of evangelism. And therefore, all kinds of gimmicks and strategies have been developed. And we saw that at the peak of the, growth, the church growth movement in the 1990s. Speaking against that phenomenon back then, O'Guinness quoted a church growth consultant who claimed that five to 10 million, million baby boomers would be back in the fold within a month if churches adopted three changes. Advertise, let people know about product benefits, and be nice to new people. And you wonder, and you have to wonder, do we read the same Bible? Now, is any wonder that at the, at the center of this movement, one of the gurus of this movement, with all due respect, was Dr. Peter Wagner, professor of church growth at the Fuller Theological Seminary School of World Mission. Because that is, that was, that is the institution that began to deny the inerrancy of the Bible in the 1960s and finally changed its doctrinal statement in 1971. If one loses confidence in the word of God, if one loses confidence in the gospel to attract and convert the soul, it's only natural that we would recur to all kinds of ancillary methods to aid that evangelistic effort. And as a consequence of that, we saw a renovated interest back then in, in the social sciences within the church. So that sociology became attractive to study the communities around it so that we may know what kind of church they wanted to have so we may build it. Not the Bible, sociology will tell us that. Then marketing became popular and all kinds of articles and books appear. I remember one single book with this title, How to Market Your Church. Then psychology became the preferred field of knowledge to do biblical counseling. All of these ideas uh, were presented with good intention, with the good intention of building the church. Unfortunately, quite frequently, the wrong church was being built. It's not an accident that many of the people involved in the development of these trends were not and are not defenders of the inerrancy or the sufficiency of the Bible. The church allowed modernity to infiltrate their, its theological understanding and is now paying the consequences of it. Modernity question the inerrancy of God's word and the sufficiency of God's work. It did both. And then we thought we needed to market that church. Now listen to these words from Christ himself. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send our workers into his harvest. How is that for a marketing strategy? You pray, I send. Because some people rather pay than pray. You pay a consultant? No, we pray to the Lord of the harvest. 
Now, these disciples were further instructed, and this is what Christ said to them, wait. Don't go out immediately until you receive power from above. And when they waited and they received the power promised by the Lord, then they began to preach boldly, Acts 4.13. And we know what happened. Jerusalem was filled with the apostles' teaching, Acts 5.13. And then Samaria was so impacted that is described by Luke in Acts 8.8 as full of joy. And Ephesus was in turmoil because of the preaching of the gospel without any help from the social sciences, but only by the preaching of a word that is infallible, that is authoritative, that is powerful, that is trustworthy, that cannot be shaken, that cannot be broken. This is what these people believe in the first century. Second phrase, to the ends of the world. Some have declared that inerrancy is an American construct or an American idea that is not needed in the global south, and that's why I'm speaking about it. Because for some, this problem came up when fundamentalism clashed with modernity at the end of the 1800s, beginning of the 1900s, and then we have had these classic debates in church history in America that they say we haven't had in the global south. And you know what? It is true that we haven't had those debates in the global south. But we need to remember that inerrancy is about truth, truth is about God, and God and truth are universal. And so is the Great Commission. So it is unthinkable to, uh, to consider a mission that will encompass the entire world related to truths that are intrinsically related to God that would be important in one place, the north, but not important in another place, the south. If something is true in the north, it must be true in the south. If something is true today, it must have been true yesterday. It should be true for eternity. The doctrine of inspiration, inerrancy, sufficiency, and the completion of the canon, they are all bound up together. This truth represents a unified whole. If you remove one of those fundamental blocks, the whole building will suffer with it. It's true, as I said, that in the South, we did not have the clash between fundamentalism and modernity. It's true. That is the reason why the inerrancy or the attack on the inerrancy of the Bible did not come through the front door of inerrancy, but rather through the back door of extra-biblical revelation, which represents a denial of the sufficiency and finality of the canon. In many cases, these extra-biblical revelations represent or came as a consequence of the animistic worldview of the global south. Most of the global south is animistic. Maybe two-thirds to three-quarters of the global south. But once you yield to extra-biblical revelation, then the denial of the inerrancy of the Bible is simple. Because extra-biblical revelation presupposes a Bible that is still open, a canon that is still open, incomplete, and someone is going to have to complete it. So to move from an incomplete Bible to a 
iner to, an, to an errant Bible is one step away. In the global south, the new prophets and apostles, they, they are trying to complete the Bible through new revelations. In the north, the critics are trying to not complete the Bible, but to correct the Bible. So new revelations in the south, new research in the north. The north does it through rationalism, the south does it through mysticism. Do you see the importance of this? I mentioned earlier that during the 1990s, many of the church growth movement in America, uh, many were in America making use of social sciences. Something similar was happening in the global south, but we wouldn't use social sciences because rationalism was not the worldview of the south, it was animism. Therefore, what was helping the growth of the church in the south suddenly was the spiritual warfare movement. According to the teachings of these new prophets, apostles, leaders, the problem had been that the church was rendered largely ineffective because they didn't quite understand how to fight that battle. So a new spiritual warfare movement was born and the result was that the church stopped preaching Christ and Christ crucified and began to preach and teach demons and doctrines of demons. However, Christ's commandment, commandment was, teach them to obey all that I have commanded you. Now, what may be a surprise to you is that at the center of that spiritual warfare movement in the South, who do you think was the figure right at the center of the movement? Peter Wagner, from the same institution that I mentioned to you that abandoned the doctrine of inerrancy in 1971 officially. Once we stop believing in the inerrancy of the Bible, we chip away at the authority and the sufficiency of the same Bible. As part of this spiritual warfare, some speak of what has been called prophetic acts, the remitting of the sins of nations, the tearing down of strongholds, as well as many other ideas. Those terms were unheard of prior to 1990. Others have spoken about training people to do signs and wonders through seminars. Now, I don't know which, where each one is here regarding the gift of the Spirit, the Spirit, but regardless of where we are today, I would think that we would all agree that the gift of the Spirit are or were, whichever the case may be, just that gift, not abilities that I learn through training. Given seminars to train people to do signs and wonders? One of the authors says this, the key elements of this power boost that have so far emerged are a strategic level, a spiritual warfare, a, spirit, a spiritual mapping, and an identificational repentance. Spiritual mapping is the... Um, the ability to discover what kinds of demons are in these regions so we could expel them, cast them out, so that we could come later and preach the gospel because otherwise the power and, would, uh, the, the power and the gospel and the preaching would not be the same with the presence of these demonic entities in place. Paul thought 
that the gospel and the preaching of it is the power of God into salvation. For anyone who believed, identificational repentance refers to sins of previous generation, generation that require confessions by the present generation for evangelism to take place. Where in the Bible we find teachings of this sort? No place. Number three, my time is running out. Make disciples, this phrase, make disciples, summarizes the entire Great Commission. In the original language, is only one word. Indeed, it is the main verb, is the only imperative verb in this passage. The other verbs, go, baptize, and teach, they are subordinate participles that take imperial force. So the task is about making disciples and not simply about evangelizing. The, the command was not make professionals of faith. The command was make disciples, men and women who would be totally committed to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, those who were going to make disciples, we need certain assurance to go into uh, the ends of the world. And we see in the Sermon of the Mount a perfect illustration of this assurance that they need. This is what Christ says in 528 of the book of Matthew. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all, there is the word, until all is accomplished. In other words, they could and we count and we can count on the integrity of the word in its entirety. And then in another passage, Christ says, and John register, in chapter 10, verses 34 and 35, that the scriptures cannot be broken. Now it cannot be broken because it represents the very name of God. It cannot be broken. It will not be broken. It has never been broken. And a pastor in the mission field can anchor his life and his church and his followers on that reality. Furthermore, once we admit that, there is, that this Bible is an errant Bible, we could doubt the fulfillment of any prophecy that had been given to us. How would we know if that prophecy was ever stated or if it was even stated in the way we have it today? And then we begin to make disciples in the mission field. And what should we tell the new disciples that we are making about how secure, trustworthy this Bible is? The quality of the disciples we make depends upon what, what they hear and what they come to believe about the Bible. This is what Paul says to the Thessalonians in the first letter to them. And in chapter 1, verse 7, you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Number one, he tells them you became an example. You, you have a reputation. Uh, other churches should, cop should copy you. And then in the next chapter, he tells them why they became an example in chapter 2, verse 13. And we also thank God constantly for this, that 
that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of man, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. That's why you are an example, because when you heard my message, you did not think this was coming from man, but from God, and you submitted to the word and to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. The quality of the disciples will depend upon what they believe about the quality of the word they follow. That understanding is vital in carrying out the Great Commission. What should we teach the disciples about the trustworthiness of the word they are receiving from us? Should we say, well, it is totally reliable? Or, well, you know, it is partially reliable. Or, you know, in reality, it's totally reliable here, partially reliable there. And then when they ask you, how do I know which passages are totally reliable and which passages are partially reliable, then one would have to say, well, you know, it depends upon the critics. So you immediately encounter a problem. You either trust the word of God in its entirety or you trust the word of the critics in its entirety. There is no in-between. Number four, teaching them to observe or to obey all that I have commanded you. That's my last phrase, not least. That, that is a monumental phrase. This is a phrase about obedience to a word that has been given by Christ. Teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. That instruction alone leaves out the possibility of selectively choosing some passages to be proclaimed and obey and other passages to be ignored and denied. Because you need to teach all that I have commanded you. Daniel Doriani makes a very poignant uh, observation in his commentary about the Great Commission text in the Gospel of Matthew. This is what he says. The Greek expression that is translated everything or all, it is actually two terms. One means all things, and the other means as much as. The effect is to intensify the command. We must teach potential disciples to obey every last thing Jesus said. End of the quote. Why would the Lord give them such an absolute command? Because all the scripture is God-breathed, and therefore is inerrant. It is absolute. It is authoritative. It is unbreakable. It is worthy to be obeyed. Inerrancy is about truth. Truth is about God. Truth is universal. The Great Commission is also universal. Could you imagine going into uncharted territories by telling your disciples to obey all that Christ commanded and at the same time saying, but within those old texts, there are some mistakes. But obey them. Now, Christ wouldn't do that. Christ wouldn't command to obey all, knowing that the passages were erroneous. A text with errors cannot command full obedience. You continue to see the relationship between inerrancy and the Great Commission. Now, some would say, well, you know, what happens is that the, the inerrancy is limited to the words of Christ. Yeah, the problem is that Christ spoke words where he said that the Old Testament was completely trustworthy and reliable, and so we believe. And then Paul comes by later and says we should teach the whole counsel of God. That statement from Paul would be under question 
if the texts are with myths, errors, midrash, as some may say, why would you teach any of those things if they do not represent the truth? Many are not, are not aware that many of the heresies have been born in the mission field because of the lack of training, understanding the Word of God, and the lack of confidence in the trustworthiness of the Word of God. That's why we saw liberation theology proliferating in Central America and parts of South America in the 1970s. And even to this day, is there, to my surprise. Now, as I bring this to a close, the, the importance of a doctrine can be judged or can be yeah, George, on the basis of three things. Number one, the verdict from God found in the Bible. If you want to know what God's verdict about his word, you don't need to read the entire Bible. You could go to Psalm 19. You could go to Psalm 119. He tells us they are clearly how trustworthy and reliable his word is. Number two, the blessings of seeing that particular doctrine that you're examining in place. Well, what happened? How, how, what were the results? And the consequences when that doctrine has been replaced. And that's exactly what you could do. You could go to the Reformation, move at the Reformation, the history of the Reformation in Europe, and you could see what happened when people trusted the Bible and preached the Bible. And then you could go and see and review the history of the liberal, liberal movement when they replace the inerrancy of the Bible with their critics. The Apostle Paul taught his disciple Timothy in the second letter to Timothy, chapter 4, verse 1 to 5. And basically he says, Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. Preach the word. In verse 5, he says, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Timothy, this is what you need to do. You have to fulfill your ministry. But in verse 2, he says, preach the word. That is the way we have always done evangelism, preaching the word. Timothy, preach the word. Timothy, fulfill your ministry, do the work of an evangelist. That is the way Christ did it as we see it in the gospel. That is the way the apostles did it as we see it in the book of Acts. That is the way the true church has always done it for 2,000 years. So, brothers, some of you who are being commissioned today, let us not compromise at this time of ambivalence, but rather let us stand together for the sake of God's word and for the glory of God's name and for the glory of God's, of God's people under his lordship. Let us go forward preaching the inerrant and infallible, unshakable word of God to a drifting world. Let us go from this place remembering that in the gospel we have his power, in his name, in Christ we have his promises. Do not fear, for all authority under heaven has been given to our Redeemer, and he promised to be with you always until the end of the age. And if he is for us and he is with us, who can stop you? No one. Father, we thank you, and we praise you. Therefore, half an hour or so, if you allow us to speak your word and reflect upon your word, remembering how trustworthy, how secure,
how infallible, how powerful it is. Because it represents you. It is coextensive with you. You created the word. You created the world by your word. And you have continued to do everything else by the same word. Thank you. In Christ's name. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We covet your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.